o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we're going to have a different uh, sort of show. Uh, It's going to be a panel discussion, and my guests for our panel discussion are uh, the ambassador of the Penobscot Nation, uh, Molly and Dana, Dr. Uh, Darren Ranko, from the Wabanaki Center, University of Maine, Orono, <clears throat> Dr. Rebecca Sockbasin from the University of Alberta, and uh, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, I think that's how you pronounce it. Legutko. Legutko, okay. Uh, <clears throat> director of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. Uh, Cinnamon and Rebecca will come on uh, later in another few minutes. Um, the topic... Uh, that uh, I thought might be really uh, interesting to sort of unpack today is the topic uh, of uh, decolonization. Uh, <clears throat> we we hear that, at least I've heard it a lot in uh, academia, and also now in the Native communities uh, when they talk about different programs and different things that they want to do uh, within those communities, and it's like, well, let's decolonize. Uh, I want to talk about what that means, decolonize and uh, colonization and, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm going to start with uh, Ambassador uh, Molly and Dana and uh, and ask you, Molly, and, um, how do you perceive that topic? What comes to mind when you hear that? Sure. I probably come at it from um, a slightly different standpoint. Um, I'm not really a scholar on the subject, but I've had a lot of background in different things where it definitely is a topic of interest. So I come from obviously the political side of things with my ambassador work, but I've also done the work with Indian mascots and racist imagery and, you know, have some connections and know a lot of people in the activism sphere. So when we talk about decolonization, to me, it's um, it can be a term of empowerment. It's basically taking some power back. the The term itself implies that we, you know, we're a conquered people, and we are undoing that. And I think at the root of it, it's a power struggle. So I think that indigenous people on this continent have a unique experience with this from any other group because while other minorities were mistreated, certainly we were the only group to try to be conquered and um, wiped out. So for us to stand up and say, you know, not only are we going to fight for our rights and have this voice, but we're going to take it a step further and quote unquote decolonize our own minds and our own interactions and our own communities and our own um, identities, I guess, that that can be a powerful thing. And then when we get into, you know, what does it all mean? And like you said, how do we unpack it? You know, how do we kind of walk the walk with this? And I know, you know, we've talked before 
the show that we're in a lot of modern systems, you know, we're um, quote unquote modern, you know, uh, even the, the government systems we have may not be traditional to our tribes, you know, back and back and back. So we're, we're very much connected to this conquer the conquerors society. So how do we resolve that conflict in ourselves when we want to, you know, completely decolonize, but we're not going home to live in wigwams? You know, and I think that's where people are, um, you know, having a struggle sometimes. I did some work with the uh, revival of a Penobscot language, and it's, you know, people feel very, very ashamed that they don't know it, you know, and I think that's a big part of that identity struggle where, you know, to admit that you don't know your language is to admit that you've that you've lost a, a big part of yourself and that it was really taken from you, and it's hard to not feel... Um, you know, to not feel angry about that, I think, a lot of my work in the language. So I, th- I think it we can come at it from a lot of different views, and I, I certainly have some experience with, you know, different relationships I've had with people in the activism community and people, um, you know, resisting changing these mascots and now people in the political realm where this is certainly, you know, something that we need to discuss a lot. Yeah. Dr. Renko? Yeah, so... As an academic and scholar, uh, I'm very aware that uh, terms like decolonization can be uh, elitist and mind-numbingly obtuse for most people. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am influenced by um, other indigenous scholars and their thoughts on on decolonization. Um, Linda Tuai Smith, who is a a Maori... uh, a scholar and an activist in her own right talks about um, decolonization as work that is mindful of who we were before being colonized, as well as uh, the impacts of colonization on us and the way we live and who we are, who we think of ourselves being, and that the work of decolonization is a kind of mindful um, attempt at reclaiming our identities, our histories, our cultures, um, but with an understanding of the legacy of colonization. So I I think at at worst it can be uh, uh, something that is co-opted by academic types who aren't really doing the community work. But I think at best in the context of both Native communities and the spaces within which um, we operate as educators, as uh, artists, as whoever we are, I think there are these spaces of engagement um, that are really important for us to thoughtfully decolonize because there are certain institutions, like, for example, the museum, that we constantly have to revisit time and again to express who we really are as opposed to who other people have defined us as as being. So I think the work of decolonization um, requires some some mindful understanding that it can't all be done at once, or it maybe it's a never ending process. But that we can really um, engage with different institutions, both inside and outside our communities, to um, decolonize them, which uh, oftentimes the 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 word that gets kind of thrown in with decolonization is indigenize them, right? So we've been 
you know, our tribal government, for example, wasn't necessarily a traditional form of our government to the extent that we've indigenized it. You both have been representatives in that government. I think it is it is a process around which it is being indigenized always, but how do we make it work um, for the legacy of both who we are culturally and the legacy of who we um, have become through the process of colonization? And those are really difficult things to attack, um, but I think they're worthwhile being somewhat mindful of it. I think that's where decolonization is a really useful tool. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I just went to, uh, I was in researching this, uh, I came across an article from Indian Country Today about uh, decolonization, and I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. I think it might help us sort of uh, get on track or whatever. And uh, and again, it's it was in it was a guest editorial, and it was written in uh, two, 2009, so the term has been around for a while. So it says, uh, in the decolonization approach, Indians are seen as marginalized victims of greed, power, and cultural hegemony imposed by unsympathetic and non-indigenous nation states, cultures, and market economies. Certainly, decolonization uh, forms the context of the history of indigenous peoples over the past 500 years. Nevertheless, the decolonization approach can only be a tool of analysis of the conditions of colonization. The problem with us with using such an approach is that it does not give central place to indigenous peoples or their abilities to make choices from resistance, achieve a measure of success, and does not account for the continuity of indigenous communities, viewpoints, and social and political, despite uh, 500 years of uh, colonial relations. I mean, there are people, there's certainly uh, on any topic you pick, and there's always people on both sides of that, and some people uh, look at colonization and decolonization, and they say, uh, as uh, one blogger, <laughs> we were looking at uh, Sunder uh, Motherhood, who says it, you know, that whole concept and that whole process is a bunch of BS, um, and just something to make uh, the the majority culture feel good about themselves, and especially if they're allied uh, to us, it's just something that they can do to help get over their their guilt complex. What do you think about that, Darren? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I I do think um, disconnected from tribal communities in particular, the the ideas and the discussion around decolonization can quickly become fairly absurd. Uh, on the other hand, I think when they are engaged with you know tribal peoples in a meaningful way. Um, and and when we do this work, for example, in a you know in a language program, in a community, um, just teaching, say for example, I mean I think it's a discussion, right? So teaching, say Penobscot language or Passamaquoddy language in our schools, do we just teach it the way you would teach any other quote unquote language in the context of a school? Um, probably not. Um, the work of decolonization actually helps frame that discussion. How 
traditionally would we understand the teaching of our language or the understanding of our language? How would we how would how would we think about this from the the point of view of us before colonization? How has us being colonized and, and Molly and mentioned that like um, how we are able to even process our own language because of being colonized means that it's going to be different for a student to learn Penobscot uh, than that it would be French because they feel connected to, uh, they should know it. It's a part of our sort of DNA, but it's somehow we're separated from it. And so if we can't address those things, that's about, to me, that's a decolonizing technique or decolonizing way of approaching our language. So, um, yeah, I know. And there's this um, uh, Andrea Landry, who's Anishinaabe and writes this motherhood, indigenous motherhood blog that you referenced. Um, she She's pointing out spaces in which this language of decolonization is co-opted by others. Um, I think it is very important as indigenous people, we be clear what we mean by it. Um, and also engage with it and really, you know, have very clear projects around what we mean by that. Mullion's work on mascots is is, an, is is a move towards decolonization because these are spaces, right, we're out in the world, we're going through, going to that school with that mascot. If we can't engage with that colonial legacy and try to change our experience in those spaces, um, we're not doing the work of decolonizing those spaces yeah you know it just comes to mind that you know maine uh has sort of been under that colonization mentality for many many generations i I think um so um and maine is even more so uh sort of under that paradigm i think than than any than a lot of other states. So I think it, it's going to be, it's harder for us to make holes in the, and make steps forward because of that, leg, that colonial legacy that we're still living under. It's not, it's not uh, post-colonial. Mm. I think it's present colonial. Oh, undoubtedly. And I think one of the things that, why, why indigenization or us claiming spaces is kind of the flip side or the other side of the coin of decolonization is precisely because colonization, if nothing else, is about erasure. Um, so it, it erases us from history, it erases our voices from it, blah, 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 blah. But it also, because of um, the colonial institutions that have separated us from our culture, our language, it erases, has erased our, our connection to um, the memories of our ancestors, Right, so it, it 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 has this double erasure. It's not just like oh, we're not in a book somewhere, or we don't know our own history. It's actually you know what people think of in continuity. And say if you're a quote unquote you know real Mainer, um, and they, I'm pretty sure they don't mean us as indigenous people. Um, you have this sort of memory, right? And you're connected to the land, and you're connected to the place in really specific ways. And that narrative is reinforced in the way that Maine defines itself. Um, by having such a profound commitment to erasing us as indigenous people, it's cut us off from that history of the before time of when we were, right, um, pre-colonized, you know, pre in that context. So I think that it's, that reclaiming process is such a critical part of 
um, decolonizing and therefore indigenizing. Um, so it's not just seeking a voice or claiming a voice. You have to first decolonizing also implies a, an unlearning or a, or a way that we have to dismantle something first before we can um, put in our narrative because it doesn't make sense in the way that we've been erased. Right. Um, I don't know. Do we uh, do we have the Dark Sock Basin on the line yet? Not yet. Okay. Um, I uh, have this uh, paper by um, Eve Tuck and uh, Kay Wayne Yang out of uh, San Diego and Eve is out of New York, uh, and it's called "Decolonization Is Not a Metaphor." And in reviewing this, uh, she or they actually break up. Uh, colonization into a number of categories, uh, which in in one is uh, is uh, internal colonization and then external colonization, um, and uh, and then there's then there's the two colonizations that come together, and and indigenous people in this country are are going through the those two that they refer to as the settlement. Uh, uh, Decolonization of the the settlers' uh, uh, colonization. So, are you familiar with that? Yeah, with those terms. You Somewhat. want to explain those to us, dear? <laughs> <laughs> it's all full of crap. Or um, <laughs> yeah, right. the uh, I, I mean, I, I I do think I think just in the in the broadest sense, this idea that uh, as indigenous people, um, and and I have this um, book which is part of a series of books. I think it's the third one. It's called For Indigenous Minds Only, a Decolonization Handbook. I brought that in because it shows a range of topics around, um, and these are all indigenous scholars um, who are engaging in um, real uh, projects within communities. I think a lot of the work has been mostly a critique of the colonial system, right, and written from, even as indigenous scholars were constantly kind of critiquing what the state of Maine has done to us or critique, you know, like, but this is, um, this is a real focus on communities, which is about what can we do in communities to start that discussion for something really uh, important. So I think that difference between decolonization um, of our minds, right? So as indigenous people, if we seek power, so one, one of the, one of the real sort of common, um, critiques uh, or issues that I think indigenous people face has to do with the way in which our gender relations have really been redefined by colonization, right? So if you think about um, the ways in which Western, especially English patriarchal systems came into our um, communities where, you know, now we trace our lineage through male lines, which is not who we are, you know, and also how gender's um, relate in terms of decision-making power within our communities. That has been so disrupted by colonization, for example, that what do we do to decolonize our own communities around, say, gender relations? Um, is there something we can do in thinking through our own laws within our communities, our own um, governmental practices? What would make it be more who we are originally in the sense of decolonizing, recognizing the fact that that's going to be a traumatic process. Like to to kind of change gender roles or or recognize that fact would require a real uh, difficult discussion within a native community. Um, 
I mean, I've, I've heard it in small ways. We're all Penobscot in our community, but not in any dramatic way, you know, say for at the government level, uh, for example. But I think it's an ongoing struggle. And that's those are the kinds of topics that how do we start that process of decolonizing our minds? Because um, we were born into, in a way, this already colonized system. So how do we, how do we get back to this or understand it? Okay, thank you, Darren. Um, I have uh, two people on the line that are interested in speaking about this topic, and uh, we, we want to hear their perspectives. Uh, one is uh, Dr. Uh, Rebecca Sockbason from the University of Alberta. Rebecca, you there? I sure am. Can you hear me? Yes, loud and okay. clear. <laughs> okay, right on. Okay, uh, Cinnamon, are you there? I am. Hello. Hello. Um, okay, so I'm going to I'm going to go to uh, Rebecca first, uh, and re- I don't know if you've been able to hear any of our conversation, uh, Rebecca. No, I'm sorry, I haven't. I just I just got on. So. Okay. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have Darren uh, here to uh, sort of help us out on this decolonization topic. Uh, Mullian is here as well. And uh, what what we've been been addressing right now is uh, the understanding of the... uh, the, what we think of when we think of uh, decolonization and uh, the the paper that you sent me by... uh, Tuck? Mm-hmm. Eve Tuck. Eve yep. Tuck, yep. Um, and some of the points that she's made in that paper, uh, you must be familiar with that, correct? Somewhat, yeah. Somewhat? Yep. Um, so she talks about uh, how decolonization is affecting the, uh, I mean, how the settlers are, uh, the kind of influence they have on our our societies. Um, it's sort of like a combination of the internal and external uh, uh, decolonization uh, effect. So uh, I, I, I guess what I'll do is I'll just ask you, <laughs> what's, your, what's your thoughts on that subject? On the subject of decolonization? Yeah, or? yeah. We'll make it simple. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it... In a lot of ways, it can be a loaded word, and I think when I first heard the word, um, which was, I don't know, maybe when, yeah, maybe 20 years ago, I heard the word, Um, and I was, you know, really inspired at the notion of there being a way out of colonial oppression, you know, is to to de it, which is like to undo it, to to, um, counter it is the is the de in the colonization so decolonizing um meant to me at the time when i first heard it that there was a way out of um, the colonial oppression because oftentimes we hear colonialism associated with um really um palatable um information about how the united states was you know discovered and um and it's associated with a lot of um, mistruths about uh, the arrival of Europeans here and the treatment um, of Native people. Um, and so as I learned more about, you know, the truth of our colonial experience as Native people, 
um, it, you know, particularly, you know, some of the really harsh truths of um, that in Maine, you know, we, we used to number over 20 tribes, and today we have five tribes, and that is because of genocide <clears throat> against our people. So we've survived over 97% of original population depletion, and um, that's a result of colonial oppression. So as I, you know, learned the, the impacts of, colo- of colonialism, the notion of decolonization um, was, at the time, really inspirational to me as a young woman. And um, so, you know, it's, today I think the way it's being taken up and used is maybe not what many of us, you know, had intended or had hoped for, had great hopes for. So um, I think it's a really important, you know, concept to attempt to hold true to, um, but given, you know, the structures that we have in place to work with, it's, um, it's a challenge. So, you know, decolonization is, is to me, is just that, you know, the, the notion or the concept of um, of um, the undoing of the colonialism. And since then, you know, decolonization, there have been newer words introduced, you know, in the literature called anti-colonialism, um, which I think in many ways attempts to take a, a deeper, broader, more significant stab at addressing colonial oppression. Um, but really it's it's about what, you know, what structures, you know, can do um, to undo, you know, colonial structures, which is basically everything that we're, we're working within our colonial structures, our legal system, our healthcare system. Um, these are all systems and structures that are not indigenous to our people. Um, so the decolonization as a concept, I think, is a, you know, is a, um, is a hope, um, but I don't know how likely it is, given the choices that governments continue to make um and i think for our own people like as native people decolonization is you know it seems it it just isn't a it isn't part of the fabric within our communities i remember you know maybe 10 years into understanding decolonization mentioning it to a group of my peers and um you know i said you have you heard of this and they just sort of said i don't know they basically just you know, chuckled at me and said, you know, whatever, you know, those million dollar words you like to use, I don't know what, you know, what that's going to mean to us. Um, and so it was, you know, it's, it's in many ways, it's like it lives in, in academia too. I don't know how much it really decolonization lives as a concept within our communities, within our native communities, right? So I think the work of decolonization is in many ways the, um, the responsibility of non-native people, um, and um, and they, you know, as non-native people, um, they have more agency or more power and access and ability to undo those structures um, within governance systems um, that impact native people. Um, so I think that it's a good term and a good concept for everyone to learn more about. Um, particularly, you know, people who have authority and decision-making power in society, um, because it is, it's a concept that takes up and addresses colonial oppression and the impacts of colonial oppression, like issues like, you know, the mascot issue, for instance, you know, is a, is a pretty pressing 
issue in the media in the state of Maine. So, you know, getting doing the mascots, getting the mascots, um, Indian mascots removed from the state of Maine is um, is a way to decolonize, right? And um, and you know, it, it's it's something that I I feel dedicated to, but it's nothing that. Um, I don't know as if it's really reaching our people in ways that um, I think that maybe the the individuals that introduced the concept into the literature maybe had hoped for. Um, but, yeah, I, I've got lots of thoughts on it, but most immediately those are just immediate thoughts. Okay. Um, now, Cinnamon, I know you've been waiting for a few minutes here. Uh now, for our listening audience, uh, Cinnamon is the director of the Abbey Museum uh, in Bar Harbor. And uh, they have recently been actually trying to or doing some projects to decolonize uh, their exhibits and how they present the native image to uh, the public. Uh, Cinnamon, do you want to address that? Absolutely. Um, I'm excited to be with you because I feel that museum spaces are often overlooked as, for lack of a better word, culprits in colonization. Um, we look at museum history and know that museums were built as these temples of culture and art and the place where objects go to be deemed important. And historically, museums were modeled after this European ideal. So, so many people have grown up visiting museums and getting these quite frankly, flawed interpretations of all world cultures. And when we begin to look at colonization and settler colonialism in the U.S., museums are the place where the spoils of war went, where the evidence of the crimes went, where we've now um, seen museum spaces, as Ho-Chunk scholar Amy Lone Tree describes museums as painful sites for Native people. And at the Abbey, we're really committed to understanding what our spaces feel like, look like, and what they could be for Native people. And starting with that recognition has been number one. We formalized back in 2012 a really um, um, a formal task force, an initiative to really consider what decolonization looks like in our spaces. And fast forward today, we continue in this framework um, inspired by Amy Lone Tree. But we've also started to take measures in how we are trained, how we document the work, and we consider decolonization an organization-wide initiative. Yes, exhibits are the absolute um, priority for consideration um, and inclusion, but we also want to consider how our decisions made. What is the governance structure? Who's making decisions at the Abbey, and how are those considering um, decolonizing issues? How are we writing policy? How are we advocating for other museums to change their work? How are we leading educational programs in the classroom and for adults? And how can we really um, transform how people think? around um, colonization and decolonization in museum spaces. It's a large-scale effort that we know will never be done, quite frankly. We know that. We also know that it's complex. But at the core of all of it, as I just referenced, is this framework that Amy Lowentree has really inspired for us. And it's about collaboration. And it's about collaborating with indigenous communities at the beginning of a project to make sure 
we have the right to even tell that story. So often museums, anthropologists have just taken the stories and put them on the walls of a museum without permission, without concern. We want to make sure at the very beginning of a project, an exhibit, what have you, we know we have the right to do this work and we collaborate throughout the whole process. And the second part for us is around privileging indigenous voice and perspective. Um, you know, the full measure of anthropological writing and history, if we look at it, is dominated um, by white scholars, European scholars and the like. And it's time to really privilege indigenous perspective and worldview and make that front and center. And it's so exciting um, when we do that because the decision-making shifts, of course. Our audiences that come to museums understand it and they find relevancy and they understand this change and they embrace it. So it's critical to privilege that perspective. And then the third part of the framework for us is truth-telling. And this is the area that many museums tend to shy away from because the difficult conversations that emerge when you tell the full measure of U.S. history and its relationship to indigenous people is really complex and painful and complicated and so undertaught. Um, so many adults today have not had a proper education around this content, and it's polarizing. And as you can imagine, museums that are publicly funded are sensitive to political issues, really shy away from this. But to really be committed to the process, you have to tell the full measure of history, all the parts therein, so that you can understand why something that happened in the present relates to something that happened 500 years ago, 12,000 years ago, the full history is critical and front and center, and that's what we focus on at the Abbey. So I'm curious, uh, Cinnamon, you uh, came to the Abbey in 2009, is that correct? correct? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then they were a totally different uh, organization. They had a different focus, uh, and it was, as as Wayne Newell would say, uh, mostly on dead things. (laughs) (laughs) So so what... uh, what changed your mind about how to approach this and, uh, and, and what types of things did you do to make sure that uh, what you were going to do was acceptable to the Wabanaki communities? Well, the process wasn't overnight, but it was certainly a deep commitment pretty early on. 2009, when I arrived, the organization had really been... Um, experiencing the after effects of, of moving into a downtown location in Bar Harbor and some structural changes and all kinds of organizational changes that really led the board and staff in opposite directions. They weren't on the same page. And the collections weren't being brought forth in a vibrant way, I guess you could say. Programming was happening with Wabanaki people, leading programming, um, and there had been a waning of commitment um, at the board level to really engage with tribal communities. So they knew the board, and when they did the search, knew something had to change. And that, but they probably didn't realize that that moment there could be change, but that there's change needed to, to make reparations for decades of concern, right? We're going back to 1928 to not ignore our original um, creation as a museum and to only think the problems are of 2009 is erroneous. So it took a few years for them to understand the depth of that. And lo and behold, turns out most board members don't know museum history. So just understanding those fundamental concepts of how museums have been organized was a great first step. But we did end up taking a full retreat um, 
as a board and as a staff with a facilitator to really talk through what these issues are. And um, at the end of that retreat, that was about 2012, there was an emotional change for everybody. It suddenly became personal. It felt um, focused on justice, reparations, healing, but no idea how to move forward. And I'm very fortunate that the board of directors, the board of trustees at the time said, we don't know what this all means, but we know we have to do something. And they really transformed into a learning board. And it's been through continual learning, never letting up that we've stayed on this path, that we've become more engaged in these concepts, paired with committed funding for training. So we've done at the staff level and some trustee level engagement, racial bias training. We've done um, extensive training and facilitated dialogue so that we can have difficult conversations and really dig into these histories and understand them more, talking to each other. But certainly at the front and center of all this is deeper conversations with Wabanaki people, deeper engagement, more collaboration, spending time with each other and really getting involved in the conversation has been critical to all of that. Um, And then about three years ago, we began that good old strategic planning process, and it was in that process that we could begin to solidify this commitment, talking to um, the Abbey's Native Advisory Council, other Wabanaki stakeholders, as well as the board and staff to really lay down the tracks for permanence around this. And even at the time this got started, Darren Ranko was um, involved. I remember Darren saying, the staff is working in a way that they really need to stop moving from their gut and move toward something more formal. That there's the emotional feeling is how I interpret that, but we need to make it um, structural so that it changes museum work. And then ultimately, as we did the strategic plan, we said to ourselves, this is all fine and good, let's keep on this path, but we have to tell others. We can't just do this here. We have to find a way that benefits other tribal communities and other museum work will change. And so we've been really active sharing our resources, sharing conversations, presenting across the U.S. about what we're doing and starting a larger conversation because, as noted earlier, this term decolonization has been alive and well in academia for about 20 years, but the conversion to museum practice is really slow, and it's just starting. And we have made a commitment to make sure people can learn from what we're doing so that they can get going as well. We feel like that's our duty. And ultimately, it's about service, changing our mindset that we are working with, by, and for Wabanaki people, and it's not anything other than service to community that drives us. And that's the new area of um, training we're moving into, is what does it mean to be of service. Okay, and uh, another thing is when you were um, looking back and trying to figure out or looking forward, I guess, trying to figure out what you wanted to do to address this. Um, it, uh, Dr. Ranko and Julia Clark wrote a paper, right? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, I have it in front of me. Um, it's called uh, The Abbey Museum, Seeking a Collaborative Future Through Decolonization. Uh, it's pretty, it, it goes into a lot of detail, Um but uh, if you could just hit the high points of that paper, Darren. Yeah, and I, I think this is, um, so in the best way, the work of decolonization is a recognition of 
what colonization is and what it does to uh, us as Native people. And um, Julie and I uh, wrote a paper, and she uh, was uh, the long-term uh, uh, collections manager. She just recently uh, left the Abbey Museum. But um, we looked back a little bit at collections policy and the framing of collections that the museum had done. And um, this isn't by any stretch y- unique, but um, is kind of alarming. And I think what a lot of Native people would kind of presume is that the Abbey and its interpretive lens for the first 60 years or so um, was really making a point that its collection and the real Indigenous people around which its collection was built had no connection to us as the current tribes in the state. So that is a real typical uh, colonial erasure move to say that um, what we're, we're collecting is the real Indigenous people and the current people are not related to them. Uh, there's a whole series of archaeological uh, discourses that support that, uh, which are also colonial in their nature. Um, but we tried to both do that, look, take a looking back and, and an assessment of that, as well as saying, now this is the work that we're doing to address this ongoing colonial legacy. And this is a little bit, only in the last couple of pages do we get to the that, that mapping, because this was still fairly early on in the in the decolonization initiative, uh, the mapping of where we wanted to go uh, for the museum. Uh, we set out some of those principles that Cinnamon had talked about uh, from Amy Lone Tree and others, and um, the creation of the uh, Native Advisory Council was something that I think changed the structure, as well as having more uh, Wabanaki people uh, on the board now has many more than it's had um, ever, I, I believe. And then um, the idea of doing um, exhibits through collaboration with Wabanaki people. So um, I think most of the exhibits now, Cinnamon, correct me if I'm wrong, um, have a community curator, uh, a Native person in the community, uh, at least co-directing the, the exhibit. So uh, that's been a change in practice as well, where to make sure those um, Native people and voices are are really addressed in a way that makes sense from a community perspective. So um, I think that's sort of the thumbnail of what we wrote in the paper, but I think it fits into the way that we think of what decolonization can be in a, in a more specific sense. Right. And uh, I know that you've you've uh, had a pretty successful uh, uh, exhibit. I think you did. Uh, was it the Four Mollies? Uh, back in when they opened in two thousand one, that was okay. So that's I'm way behind in that one. <laughs> uh, what was? Did you have uh, an exhibit from this uh, decolonization process that you? You've yes. worked on it? Okay, what was that one? So just over, um, almost three years ago now, we opened People of the First Light, which is our core exhibit. Um, it'll be up for almost 20 years. We did, we've never had a core exhibit that tells this foundational perspective and story. Um, and we consider that our first fully decolonized process. Of course, we always will have things to learn, but we worked with over 30 Native advisors on the process for... Um, Wabanaki artists, um, as well as 
five years of discussion leading up to the creation of the exhibition. So it um, really talks from the communities to the audience, and it also makes sure that we see multiple ways of understanding Wabanaki history and presence. So there's archaeology, there's language, there's um, um, current events and contemporary issues, there's oral histories, you name it. It's the full texture of how Wabanaki people understand their present and past told by Wabanaki people. Um, and it's been incredibly transformational for the rest of our work. You know, it's this touchstone that we go back to and remember the the purpose and the, the ideals and the process so that it inspires other work. And that was a big shift to make that be our core. Okay. Um, you're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We are talking today with a panel of guests, Ambassador of the Penobscot Nation, Molly and Dana, Dr. Darren Ranko from the University of Maine uh, Wabanaki Center, Dr. Rebecca Sockbasin from the University of Alberta, and Cinnamon Catlin Leguto, uh, Director of the Abbey Museum, and our topic is decolonization. Uh, Rebecca, you still there? Did you fall asleep? I, yes, I sure am. Okay, uh, <laughs> what I think... Uh, is important here is when you're looking at institutions and and some of the things we've done to help uh, decolonize, so to speak, these institutions. Um, of course, we know we can never uh, ever do that totally, but uh, you've done some work at the University of Alberta to address that situation, uh, bringing in that uh, orientation uh, Native history class for the first years. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. You want to talk a little bit about that and in in what you had to sure. do to get that done? Sure, yeah, because I think that in many ways it was named, you know, as a process of decolonization so that um, we have, uh, I mean, I teach in a faculty of education, and so um, the province, like the state of Maine, has um, expectations, uh, although Maine has it more heavily legislated. There's actual legislation that um, states an expectation that uh, Maine teachers know about Wabanaki people, including um, colonialism and the, and the oppressive history of colonialism and the legacy of that. Um, and so in Alberta, uh, we don't have as clear of legislation, but we have a um, government uh, ministerial, so the, the Commission of Education, and Alberta has a, an expectation that teachers uh, know about and learn about and are knowledgeable about um, Native people and the legacy of Indian residential schools and colonialism. Um, and moreover, and I think that this is the height of decolonization, um, that uh, pre-service teachers are trained to know about white supremacy and to learn about racism. And because decolonization is about Person, peoples and individuals um, decolonizing themselves, right? So it's not just individuals. So there's an acknowledgement in the institution that I work in that teachers have a tremendous amount of agency, the ability to impact social and political change, um, like museums, of course, um, agency to um, impact on children. So the faculty that I work in, we train uh, over 60% of the teachers in the province of Alberta and they all have to take this course, and the course is um, Aboriginal Education in the Context for Professional Development. 
and we're the last in the nation in Canada to make it compulsory. All the other provinces had um, a mandated compulsory means. Basically, the pre-service teachers are required um, to take these courses. And I work in a publicly funded uh, regional comprehensive university, analogous or similar to the University of Maine system, okay? And, um, and we have this compulsory course, and it was um, implemented, gosh, six years ago now. But I would say that it was, you know, to change a university st- governance structure, um, which would be a decolonizing process, um, took more effort and political lobbying than getting a piece of legislation drafted and passed. It was really, um, you know, quite a hard nut to crack. Um, and to also just maintain and sustain the course, to sustain the tenets of the course that requires individuals, pre-service teachers, to take it rather than voyeur and look at Native people, uh, which there is a large part of that in the course. Um, equally as important is that the pre-service teachers have to hold a mirror up to themselves and engage in a decolonizing, um, like, sort of autobiography, or they have to look at themselves and their own relationship to the land that they're on, how did they come to be, you know, here in this place on Indigenous territory? What is their relationship to Indigenous peoples? How do they perceive Indigenous peoples? Um, and that's a process. So I think that, you know, institutions need to be decolonized, and these are the ways that these um, processes happen. Um, and I think that there are only, you know, working within colonial structures like universities, because this is where knowledge is created, produced, and and disseminated our universities. So I think they're important and critical sites of decolonization. Um, and then that allows people that get to make decisions in, in society, have an education where they're exposed to the impacts of colonialism and particularly the impacts of colonial oppression, uh, which is, you know, um, I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but white supremacy is certainly embedded in that. And it oftentimes gets lost. You know, so that often decolonization gets reduced to, well, if we have more relationships with Native people, then we're decolonizing, which isn't necessarily the case because the greatest responsibility of decolonization is really on non-Native people um, but and institutions because that's where the, the decision-making power uh, resides. So that, um, you know, it's, it's an effort that we've made out here that is not easy to sustain but requires that senior-level institutional support. Um, And certainly, you know, the Indigenous scholars that we have, um, you know, we've got some of the the highest numbers of Indigenous scholars in our university than any other in Canada, too. So those are efforts of, you know, that would work toward decolonization that institutions can be making, universities um, and other institutions, like what we've heard, you know, Darren um, and Cinnamon talk about, and then, you know, on an individual process, it's, you know, Maine is the whitest state in the nation. And that didn't happen um, out of the sky. You know, it's, it's like when I go, when I always when I go back home, because where I live out here, there's over 60,000 Native people in just this one city. In Maine, we have over 5,000 Indians in the state of Maine. And um, my children recently asked me, you know, why is it that it, Maine is the whitest state in the nation? And it's not that Maine is the whitest state in the nation. Well, statistically, that's true. But I think the state of Maine has been one of the most successful states in the U.S. to um, keep colonial oppression hidden 
um, but also the colonial structures have um, kept Indigenous peoples, not only um, the systems, our Indigenous systems totally disrupted, but we have been kept out of the power structure um, and certainly disseminated. I mean, like I explained earlier, you know, the genocide that our people in Maine have survived is some of the greatest of that in the world has ever known. Um, but to maintain its status as the whitest state in the nation takes quite a bit of colonial structure perpetuation. So the, the structures at play um, aren't really addressing decolonization. And so it's really a deeper, you know, a deeper analysis than just Maine as the whitest state. You know, Maine has been quite successful at the dispossession of indigenous peoples. And, and has not been very successful at engaging with concepts like white supremacy within education institutions. You know, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, Darren, what, do you have something to say about that? I was going to go more on her first point, which has to do with the educational system. Okay. Um, I think th- that becomes a really, like museums, probably more so than museums, uh, educational systems are this uh, site for us to uh, decolonize. And I just want to add in that, you know, I, I think the institutional engagements are really important and and we do that work um, all the time. I think there are elements of a grassroots um, um, attempts within from Native people within Native communities, which are if not um, labeled as decolonization, are our attempts at decolonizing, for example, our educational system. I've been involved with uh, a project called the Wabanaki Youth Science uh, Program that um, really is an attempt, and I I believe led by uh, Native people. Um, Mullion's father has been a really important part of this, Um, and it's about teaching science in a way to our children that would make sense and be decolonized where it would put our value system and our knowledge system at the center of teaching science while also um, incorporating you know the, the the some of the tools and techniques of Western science um, we recently got a an NSF grant to bring some of the this has been a middle and high school um, student program up to this point where now we're attempting to institutionalize it or decolonize the university space and attempt to change the way in which science is being taught differently at the University of Maine. Um, But I think the fact that it starts as a kind of grassroots movement, that it was um, a desire by different elements in different Native communities across the state that we um, teach science in this way, that this is the preference, this is uh, reflective of our identity and our legacy um, in terms of especially we really emphasize in this program environmental sciences, but it's gone, that's a pretty broad topic. It's anything from water and biology to forest to to all sorts of things. And I think um, that is, we are seeing our students succeed and uh, achieve in, in sciences because of this background in teaching that is, you know, decolonized or more uh, attuned to who we are as Native people, and that is uh, a really critical part of our success. So I think decolonization um, can and should always have these kind of grassroots elements to it and really serve these kinds of interests as well. Okay. Uh, So we're talking about uh, a couple institutions here, the museum and the the university. Let's go back to... uh, 
Ambassador Maureen Daner and talk about a little bit about government. You've got a couple of minutes, so... Uh, could something to say about that? Sure. Well, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, talking about Maine being the whitest state in the country and, you know, keeping Native people out of the power structure. And as we've seen, you know, my ambassador role was born out of the tribes withdrawing their, you know, formal representatives to the legislature because we were so... Um, you know, we didn't feel like we had a proper seat at the table and we weren't being treated uh, with respect uh, to our inherent sovereignty. You know, tribes really need to be treated in a nation-to-nation relationship with state and federal governments. And in the state of Maine, it's just been this, you know, heavily, um, you know, disrespectful relationship where it's more like a paternalistic type thing than this, you know, sovereign-to-sovereign entities doing business. So it's definitely very prevalent, and this is a very um, relevant discussion to, you know, my work in government. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, I'll give you one minute to say you. The last piece. <laughs> One minute. <laughs> okay. Well, I I I think that this you know I've I've been working in consultation with some community groups and I you know I think that you know ultimately uh, the gaze that I'm trying to refocus on in my own work you know as a scholar is much of what you know Dr. Ranko is taking up and talking about um, <clears throat> because I think that when we invest there we get the greatest reward. So the investments in Indigenous knowledge or Wabanaki knowledge preservation um, is the best use of our time. Um, and I think, in effect, you know, that is, you know, the where the decolonization happens. Um, you know, and so I think that so much of my work, you know, similar to Darren, has been dedicated to that engagement with, uh, you know, Wabanaki knowledge and what he's talking about in this context is the science and the Waze program, and I know that my 15-year-old son last year had a great opportunity to work on Indian Island with, um, with an Indigenous, with a, uh, a Penobscot mentor, and was able to go on to the river, you know, for quite a bit in the summer and, um, and engage experientially, you know, with, um, with our ways of being and, and knowing. So I think that that is a, a critical and an important investment, you know, to be continuing to make. There's so much work to be done um, in the process of decolonization, and I think that it's um, we need to stay in many ways hopeful. I know that I read something recently. I had sent that along to you, um, Auntie, um, that blog about how you know it can be, it can feel very hopeless because we have so much in front of us that needs to be taken up. Okay, um, Rebecca, I'm going to have to cut you off right there. Uh, okay. Thank, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I want to thank my panel, Ambassador Molly and Dana, Dr. Darren Ranko, Dr. Uh, Rebecca Sockbason, uh, Cinnamon Catlin Laguto, Executive Director of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. Uh, tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.